I, by no means do I want to embarrass anyone, but if you um, would like a Bible, we have Bibles in the back, and uh, I'm going to have some of the ushers come by, and I would just encourage you, make sure if you have one so you can follow along in Luke chapter 1 and verse 2, because we're going to be doing quite a bit of reading, and um, so if you, if you have one as they come by, just kind of raise your hand, we'd be happy to, to give you one, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible personally, um, you're welcome to keep these and, uh, you know, take them out with you and that kind of stuff, okay? All right, very good. Luke chapter 1 then, uh, verses 5 through 25 is our main text for today, but uh, that's not all we're going to be focusing on. Now Christmas is celebration of the birth of the Messiah, we know that. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us in the form of a little child born in Bethlehem. It's the story of angels, of shepherds, of wise men from the east, of Mary and Joseph. But the story of Christmas is only one majestic event along the thread of God's predetermined plan. Christmas is not, and get this, Christmas is not an isolated event, but it is tied to the heart of God through the ages. In other words, it wasn't that God just had Christmas on his mind. This is not the end of the story. In fact, I heard someone on the radio this week, on a Christian radio, say, the most important day in the Christian calendar is Christmas. I'm like, no. Um, we usually think of Easter being the most important day in the Christian calendar as far. But the, the, the reality is, they are all special days in the ongoing redemptive plan that God had determined before he created the world. So we can't come to Christmas, and we can't come to Easter, and we can't come to other special days and just isolate them and say, this is the main thing, this is the most important thing, without recognizing they are connected to a thread of redemption throughout the Word of God. Now, we're not going to read all of God's Word today to connect that thread, but we are going to spend time looking for a thread. Now, we often associate Christmas with the coolness of winter, not usually rain, it's usually snow, right? You just think of snow, darkness, um, with a star shining bright. When you go out and look at the Christmas lights, you want it to be dark, don't you? So the lights will shine brightly. Wise men, shepherds, angels, and sheep, and you know, cattle, and that kind of stuff are all part of this Christmas or this Christmas theme. Unless, of course, you live in places like Arizona or somewhere along the equator. Um, you don't associate Christmas with the sun. Well, Christmas and the sun. But the sun is definitely a part of Christmas, as you will soon see. This morning, I'd like for you to have your Bible, and let's begin at Luke chapter 1 and verse 76. Luke chapter 1 and verse 76 and following. Here we have Zechariah prophesying about John the Baptist. And I want you to see that the sun, S-U-N, is actually a very important part of Christmas. And he says here, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, he's talking about his son John here, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun rise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And so we have this sun, this sunrise that is coming into the earth that John is going to be preparing for. And Zechariah here is prophesying about his son John who is going to be preparing the way for the sun that would rise from on high to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death and also to guide our feet in the way of peace. So here we have Jesus who's described as the sunrise. And his coming to the earth is like a sunrise. There's been darkness, but the sun is rising. You get the picture. That's not your typical Christmas picture, but the sun is rising. And so he's rising to guide us into an awareness of our utter sinfulness and to reveal to us the glorious gospel of good news that reconciliation with God and cleansing from our sin is present in Jesus Christ. This darkness is now going to change because light has come, the sun has come, and in the sun coming, there is hope. There is the possibility of reconciliation. There is the possibility of cleansing, and that Reality comes through Jesus Christ. It's not just a Christmas theme. It's a theme throughout the Word of God. But it certainly is part of our Christmas story. And so as we come to this passage, we come face to face um, with the sun and the sun that's going to rise. Let's just pause for a moment and ask God to give us strength as we consider uh, what he has for us in these couple of chapters. Lord, help us today to be teachable Lord, to be humble before you, to recognize, Lord, just the, the, the beauty and the wonder of Christmas. But, Lord, not to be so boxed into the typical Christmas story that we don't see the greater plan that you have for us and, Lord, what you have accomplished on our behalf. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, just to simply be a, uh, the, the mouthpiece for your text, Lord, that you would simply speak the words through me and that we as your people, Lord, would be strengthened and, Lord, those that may not know you would come to, to see you as Lord and Savior um, who has ultimately died for their sin. And Lord, there's, there's salvation for you. So Lord, help us today uh, to allow these things to settle into our hearts as we study your word in your name. Amen. Now, this morning, I want, I want to help connect the dots of this Christmas thread. And I want you to note uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. And um, Nehemiah chapter 13 is the last recorded events of the Old Testament. So when you think about when did the Old Testament end as far as the story of the Old Testament, the events of the Old Testament, it was in Nehemiah chapter 13. Last words recorded, last events recorded, and I, we're going to focus in on verse 28. So Nehemiah, if you have your Bibles and you can find Nehemiah, I want you to follow along at verse 28 and following. And here we have um, this priestly order that Nehemiah is talking about that has been violated because the priests had intermarried with the daughters of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. So Nehemiah records how he chased the men down, he beat them, and pulled out their hair. Great story. All right, just in case you want to know how to handle error in the body of Christ, there, Nehemiah has it for you, all right? And then he, he ultimately restored 
and purified the priesthood. That's the important part here. Okay? The priesthood had wandered, even in the reconciliation and the rebuilding the t- of, of, of the walls and res- restoring of the temple there in the story of Nehemiah and Ezra. But there was a problem with the priesthood, and Nehemiah is, is bringing cleansing now to what's going on there. So pick it up at verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the son of, uh, the, son of the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. If you know the story, Sanballat was against the whole project, okay? Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided the word, sorry, the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? We'll find that out in just a little bit. But just notice here that the order of the priesthood had been tarnished, and because of Nehemiah, they are restored. They're cleansed. They're reestablished. Okay? And he says, remember them, O my God. Remember me, O my God. And what happens next? Silence. These are the last recorded events of the Old Testament. We don't have any more activity, any more interaction by God with his people at this point until we get to the New Testament. Now, in Malachi chapter 4, if you want to turn there, Malachi chapter 4, we have the last prophecy in the Old Testament. The last prophecy in the Old Testament. Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubbled. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. We've already seen a son being talked about in Luke's gospel, right? The son from on high. Same son now being talked about here prophetically in Malachi. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping and, uh, like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, For all Israel, behold, I will send you, who? Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that's the last prophecy. Now, friends, the implications of these two passages come together in the passage that J.D. read. And in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the promise of a coming son whose name is John, and John would function like an Elijah in preparing the way for the Lord. Okay? And by the way, Zechariah is part of the order of what? 
the priesthood. All right, so you begin to think, uh huh, wait, last events, last prophecy, there's some things that are working together here. But these are sta- stated in the Old Testament, but we have silence. For 400 years, there is silence. God does not speak, but life goes on. And you can almost feel the tension in the, the silence here among the Jews because uh, the, the, you know, life is going on, society is changing, things are happening around, but God is silent. We don't know what he's saying. We don't know what he's thinking at that point in time. There are horrors that are experienced, but life is going on. And it's this threat of silence that permeates the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it isn't central to the story, but it is, it is a thread that connects and weaves through the Christmas story that helps us understand what God is about, what he's doing. Of course, Jesus is central to the story. But we're going to hang our thoughts now on this thread of silence. And so let's begin, first of all, with what I'm calling the silence of 400 years. God is silent for 400 years. The prophet Daniel predicted with precision during the 400 years, the land of Israel would pass from the empires of the Medes and the Persians um, to the Greeks, and then ultimately to the Romans in the course of 400 years. Now, depending on what, you know, heritage is, 400 years is a long time, right? We here in America, right? Our country is how old? Anyone know? A couple of hundred and some change, right? Right? And, oh, it's such a long time, right? Then you go over to Europe, and you stand in some castles that have been around for a thousand years, and you're like, ah, Boy, 200 years is nothing, right? I mean, so it's all perspective here, but 400 years is a long time. What happened during this 400 years? Why is this significant? During the silence, Israel was still under the control, you might want to say, under the oversight, under the dominion of the Medes and the Persians, under Artaxerxes, allowing them to go back and rebuild the temple, and that continued on then um, after these last prophecies, after these last events. But it was during that time, under the Medes and the Persians, that the the Jews, the remnant Jews, in particular the ones not in Jerusalem, established what you might call the synagogue. And the synagogue was a significant place for the Jews to gather and to meet. Why? Because they didn't have the temple. When they were in Babylon, they didn't have the temple. So they established the synagogue, and that was their place of gathering. That was their place of worship. Now, I want you to hold on to that. Then... We have Alexander the Great, who came up against the Persian armies, and he was outnumbered 10 to 1, and yet his 5,000 beat the 500,000, totally routing them, and ended up taking the whole region, expanding the borders to these, these, these huge kind of boundaries. And in doing so, the Greek language became the standard language of that day, Koine Greek. And then we have, during that 400 years, After the Medes and Persians, after Greece, we have the Romans who ultimately defeat Hannibal and the Phoenicians who had defeated the Greeks, and they establish a reign, and their reign was a reign of peace and stability for the region. So in this time of silence, this time of seeming darkness, get this, God was at work. He might have even put it this way. The voice of God was silent, The hand of God was actively at work orchestrating the course of events. Let me just connect some dots for you. 
when Jesus went from village to village, and he was going to those villages, and he was healing people, and he was speaking, where did he go? He went into synagogues. When Paul and, and others went to various places around that Mediterranean, where did they go to share the gospel? Where did they go to speak to the people? They went into the synagogues. God, in the course of the silence, was preparing for the coming of Jesus by establishing the synagogue. Jesus, when he came to the earth, came into a context where Greek, Koine Greek, was the standard language. And he spoke Greek. So did everyone else speak Greek. And that's why when you have these stories about Jesus being in Galilee, you have these people from all over the different place coming through Galilee, understand that Greek language was like today's English. Everyone knew it. It was either a first language or it was a second language then, but they understood it. It was the language of communication of that day. And it spread all across that, that Hellenized region. So God was at work establishing synagogues, establishing the language, and then under the Romans, he was providing that peace and that stability. Well, it may not have been quite stable. Well, it's true, there, there were some skirmishes going on, but primarily under the Roman rule for 100 years, there was stability, there was peace. And all this was being orchestrated by God so that when Jesus came into this world, the timing was perfect. Right? When the fullness of time, God says, God sent forth his son at that exact time. So God is silent. The son of righteousness was preparing to rise with healing in his wings. The sunrise from on high was preparing to visit, to shine on those sitting in darkness, to guide their feet in the way of peace. But on a special day, God breaks through that silence. And that's where we come to Luke chapter 1, and in particular Luke chapter 1, verse 5 and following. And here we're introduced to this elderly couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. All right? Zechariah and Elizabeth are, first of all, descendants of the priestly tribe. Look at verse 5. In the days of Herod, the king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So, it was from the division of Abijah, priestly division. What do we know about Aaron? All right, he was the first priest. This is basically saying that she was a daughter of a priest. So you have both of them that are from the line of priests. All right? Uh, you just see some of these things coming together here. Secondly, they're devoted in their Judaism. They were both righteous, we're told in verse 6, before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So their religious character and devotion is evident by their desire to walk in obedience to the commands of the Lord. They were devoted. Third, they're disappointed. They're disgraced. Verse 7, but they had no child. Now you just almost feel the tension as we read through this text. They're priestly descendants. Oh, great. All right. They match up there. They're blameless in their walk. Oh, that's great. But they, they had no child. Ugh. It's gut wrenching. I mean, and, and we know that they're older in years in the story here. So there's a struggle, and there was this disappointment. And ultimately a disgrace. Now listen, this is not the only case in the word of God where we have an, an elderly couple who has not been able to bear children, right? And, and almost in all of those scenarios, there, there's, this, there's this shame and disgrace connected, culturally speaking. Not from God, 
But the culture of that day looked down upon that and you know, had reasons why you know, that would be the case. So here, this, this disgrace, this disappointment. Look, look, jump down to verse 25. Elizabeth here describes her barrenness as a disgrace. It says there, he took away my reproach among the people. So we know that she's thinking this. We know that they're feeling this. Okay? But number four here, he is, in particular, Zechariah, is dutiful in his service to God. So we're just gathering all this, this information that, that Luke specifically, carefully gives us to help us understand what's going on in the beginning of the story here. He was dutiful in his service to God. This was one of the biggest days of Zechariah's life. He was a priest, an ordinary country priest, one of about 8,000 living in the land of Palestine at that time. Now, they were divided into 24 divisions and about 300 in each division, and so they would serve twice a year as priests for one week. But what happened here, as we read in verse 8 and following, is that he is given specific responsibilities. Look at verse 8 and following. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, so this is their week, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. So you have these 300 people, they cast lots, and he, along with at least two others, um, were chosen now to serve as priests in the temple of the Lord. But notice this word and, and to burn incense. Now the best I can do in my understanding of what's going on here is you have the three, these 300 priests and then by lot, that means it's kind of like a, a method of choosing there, um, kind of divine revelation as they cast these lots. They're sorted out and three men are chosen. Then out of those three, one is chosen to offer incense. This is the greatest honor any priest could ever have who is not serving in the capacity of high priest. He would be going in and he would be offering incense, not in the Holy of Holies, but right next to the Holy of Holies in the holy place. But just get this. He was going about his priestly duties just like any other of the priests were doing. It was that one week when it was his family's responsibility. He didn't know this was going to happen. It wasn't like they told him eight months earlier, this is, gonna, this is what's going to happen. He shows up for his duties, and while he's there, they cast lots. Hey, you've been chosen to be one of the three. It's like, wow, I've been chosen to be one of the three, and now beyond that, you've been chosen to, burn, uh, to, to offer incense on the altar, the greatest honor you could ever have. So just let that settle in here. I mean, what, what a day this is for him. And I'm sure he's going in thinking, oh man, I, I better get everything right. This is my one time. I better not mess up. All the training, all the experience I've had, all the times I've come, maybe wanted to take on this responsibility, now is my chance. And so while the multitude of worshipers are gathering outside of the court of Israel, the rest of the priests were busy readying the sacrifice in the courts of the priests, and Zechariah enters the holy place, which is next to the holy of holies. In front of him is the golden altar of incense. To his left is the golden candlestick. To the right is the table of showbread. And Zechariah purifies the altar. It's part of the first stage of what needs to take place, eagerly waiting for the signal to offer incense. And as the incense is lit and the aroma is soaring upward, 
God would break through the silence. And notice what it says. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, last week we looked at Mary. An angel came and appeared to her, and she was troubled, and we understood that. Here we have Zechariah, and we can certainly have compassion on him because he is troubled. Now, we, we need to kind of paint the picture of what's going on. This is not like, oh, wow, a little unsettled here. No, this is, I am terrified. I am in the holiest place that I, as a priest, could be in because I'm not a high priest. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And he wasn't a high priest. So he is in, might want to say, the grand central station of worship to the God of the universe. And he's in there doing his duties. And all of a sudden, bam, this angel appears. Now, I think if we were there, we wouldn't say, oh, I'm a little unsettled. You know, can I take a Tums or something like that? No. God had been silent for 400 years. God spoke through prophets, right? And he had been silent. So all of Zechariah's teachers, all of his teachers' teachers, and probably all of his teachers' teachers' teachers had lived in a context where they had never heard about or experienced God speaking. They just had the rest of the Old Testament. And so he's going about his duties, and all of a sudden, an angel appears, and he is terrified. We can certainly understand that. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, we're not, we're not told specifically what Zechariah's petition is, but part of the responsibility of going in and and being a part of that priest is to, is to pray for the redemption of Israel, for the, the salvation and God's protection and his ongoing care of Israel. But in this situation, the grace of God here is that the redemption of Israel would also come through the answered prayers that he has, along with his wife, prayed because they desired a son. And God was going to answer his prayers as a father, as well as his prayers as a priest for Israel. Here we have a dual answer to prayer. Listen to what Gabriel says about this son, John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their He will go before him in the spirit and the power of who? Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a quote then from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to read it again just so you can see how much it matches up. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now this is absolutely stunning 
and incredible news. I'm going in, it's my day, I'm gonna do the best I can, I'm waiting, I'm offering incense, and all of a sudden this angel appears and I'm terrified, and that angel says, listen, don't, don't fear, I come with some good news for you. Here he is, Elizabeth, who is beyond years of childbearing, will have a son, and that son will usher in the son of righteousness. Now, the thing that God wants us to see here is this. All this time, God has been silent. He has been working his plan, preparing for this moment. Silence does not mean God is inactive. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. The silence of 400 years teaches us that when it seems like God is silent, be assured that the hand of God is actively at work orchestrating the course of your life. So when it seems like, God, I'm just not hearing from you, I don't know what you want me to do, and I'm, I'm reading your word, and, and I'm, I'm going through all these different things in my life, some are difficult, some are normal, some are mundane, but it just seems like, God, I'm not sure what it is I'm supposed to be doing. Be sure, even though you may not feel like God is active, he is. Because he is active in the life here of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. Now, sometimes here's where we go. We think to ourselves, oh, wait a second. God works with his main characters in the Bible. He only does the kind of stuff with the main characters in the Bible. Well, that's, that's not true. God is provident over all of our lives. He is, is passionate about what he is doing in all of our lives. And so just because we don't understand just because we don't see, just because we don't hear, does not mean that God is not active or doesn't care. He cares deeply, but he is about working his plan. And you can be sure that when he unleashes his plan in your life, whatever that might be and whatever the circumstance is, that the timing is perfect and the way he's going about it is right. It wouldn't be how you orchestrate it. And I'm sure that if we were to go around this room and we were going to ask each other, do you have any experiences of times when it just seemed like, you know, it's like I'm praying for this, I'm praying for this, and I'm waiting on this, and it's like, this isn't happening the way it needs to happen, God, I'm just, I need you to act, I need you to do something, and you go through all these kind of emotions, and all of a sudden, in God's way, in his timing, he answers that prayer. And you're like, why was I even worried? Because he does what he says he's going to do. So from the, the, the silence of 400 years, we now move into what I'm calling the silence of nine months. The silence of 400 years, the silence of nine months. So this incredible appearance is taking place. Zechariah is trying to sort it all out in his head. He's trying to listen to the counsel that was given to him by the, by the angel to not be afraid. He's trying to sort out the incredible promise and the instructions that he's been given. And, and understandably, he has questions. I think we all would. Uh, when we're told certain things, especially if we're on in years and has to do with having a child. You know, it seems like we're beyond all that. Verse 18 says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Now, if you just read that at face value, you say to yourself, You know, I get, I get it. I get what you're saying here. I, you know, we've been praying about this for a long time. How in the world do you this? Because, you know, things aren't working like they used to. All right? Now, this was a bad move on Zechariah's part. You know, he's a righteous man, but his words show his unbelief. If you jump down to verse 20, you'll find evidence of that. Um, not only it shows his unbelief, but it also shows his doubt in the very power of, 
of God, the God that he is now offering incense to. So on the one hand, we empathize with Zechariah. We may have a close walk with God, but sometimes we're blinded as to what he can actually do. I mean, you're, you're, you're actively studying your Bible. You're going to home groups. You're going to Bible studies. You're reading. You have your devotions every day, and you're praying. But you know what? You just really you have a hard time believing that God is going to answer that particular prayer that you have because you just can't see how it's going to happen. You just can't comprehend how it's going to happen. It might even seem impossible to you. But we know our theology. We know, in theory, what God says, and we know what he promises but oftentimes, as I mentioned before, we think, you know, look at this way. So God is not concerned about little old me. He, he wouldn't visit me. He wouldn't work through me. I'm really insignificant. And guess what? You are. So just get over that. Okay, we're all insignificant. And yet God works through insignificant people. He doesn't reserve his promises and his attributes and his person just for those special people we might say are the key role and players in the story of the Bible. It's for all of us who are his children. And so we, we empathize with Zechariah, um, but what we have here is a reminder that he is calling Zechariah to a life of belief, to belief in him, to believe in his promises, to believe in his timing, to believe in his ways, and to believe in the fact that he typically works his plan through humble, insignificant people. So the second thing we, we need to recognize here is this, that his response is ultimately unbelief. Now, we struggle with unbelief. We might say, oh, we're all believers, but as believers, we struggle with unbelief. If we didn't, um, we wouldn't have much to talk about, okay? That's why we spend time being together, because we struggle with believing what God says. All right, can I believe what God, will, uh, that he'll hear my prayer? Will he listen? Will he care? Will he even do anything about my problem? You ever, you ever felt that way or said that to yourself, maybe in the quietness of your heart? When you pray, do you pray believing? Do you trust that he knows best, that his timing is perfect, that his ways are beyond understanding? Are you amazed that he answers prayer or that he does? may not be the way you planned it, may be, not be the way or the, at the time that you wanted it, but he was at work and he met your need. And when you recognize that, how does that fuel you to pray again? And how does that fuel you to live your life for his glory? And how does that fuel you to testify of his goodness? Now see, none of that would, would take place except that God was working his plan and his timing was perfect and his care was clear. But listen to the rebuke from the angel Gabriel. Verse 19, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to who? To you. To bring you this good news. In other words, Zechariah, you may not understand. You may not be able to comprehend this. But get this. I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God. The idea there is that Gabriel saying, I am a messenger. So if I'm speaking, it's as if God is speaking directly to you. That's the idea here. And because I'm representing God, I have a message for you. It's good news for you. And friends, that's exactly how God wants us to view 
his recorded word to us. I just get this. We don't often see it this way. This is God speaking to us. This is not some textbook. This is not some resource manual we pull off and say, oh man, I got a problem in my life. I wonder what it says. I know I have a concordance or I have some theme things in the back, which are very, very helpful, by the way. But this is God's very breathed word. And when we read it, it's God speaking directly to us about us. We don't often see it that way, though. Oh, we know it in theory, but that's not how we read it. And why is it that I happen to be in that particular text? Or why is it that we're studying a particular text in church? Or why is it in a small group we happen to be studying another passage of Scripture? It's because God in his orchestration of events in your life wants to feed and to shape you with his truth for that particular moment. He is God. He is speaking to you through the medium of his word, which, by the way, is illuminated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in the same way that God comes through Gabriel and says, I am here as a representative of God, God is saying to us, I have given you myself through my word so that you know my heart, you can understand what it is I desire for you to be and do. Take it as a message from me. Not just kind of like generally thrown out there. But to you, and to you, and to you. Now, Gabriel continues. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Gabriel reinforces the fact that Zechariah's words at the beginning there were words of unbelief. And because of his unbelief, he is going to be silent. He's going to be unable to speak. Now, all of us had taken some extra time. I mean, he's in there, he's supposed to be offering incense, and all of a sudden, bam, Gabriel appears to him, and there's this interaction that's taking place, and the people are outside wondering what's going on. Now, in, in the text, this is kind of like a meanwhile back in Gotham City moment, okay? There's a stuff going on in the temple here, and there's stuff going on outside. And by the way, there's still people out there, and, and they're, they're beginning to wonder. They're a little concerned. What's going on? Because, listen, if, if a priest goes in and he desecrates his responsibility, he runs the risk of condemnation. He runs the risk of immediate death. And so, you know, is he taking too long because there's a problem in there? Now, this is the of holies, and the high priest would go in once a year. Tradition would say that they would go in there with a rope tied around their ankle because if they did die, they needed to be able to pull them out because no one could go in there. I mean, this is a serious moment. That's what I'm saying. Get the gravity of the seriousness of this moment. What is happening with Zechariah? He has this grand responsibility. He's encountered this messenger from God, and it's taking way too much time. So what's going on? Verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So, I mean, there was some discussion why is he taking so long, you know? Well, he's old. Don't you know he's old? It takes him longer to kind of get through all that guy. Whatever the conversation was, they were wondering what was taking place. And when he came out, he was able to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. There was something about his countenance, that it was clear that he had an encounter with a divine being, or I might say an angelic being. 
And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Wow. (laughs) Get this. What the angel said would happen, what? Did happen. You can say the fact that he was silenced was a method of punishment. But this silencing of him was also a method of confirming on him that what God says he will do, guess what? He will do. You know, here you are speaking, and the angel said, you're not going to be able to speak. You're thinking about, what do you mean I'm not going to be able to speak? I can speak. My vocal cords are working fine. And all of a sudden, why can't I speak? Because the angel said, you're not going to speak. Prophecy, promise. Now get this. If you can't believe the big miracle, maybe you can believe the smaller miracle. If you can't believe that I'm going to give you a son, believe that I'm going to cause you to be mute. And if you need energy to believe God's word, look at all the other ways he is and has been faithful to what he has said. I'm sure that now he's mute, thinking to himself, okay, you win. I get it. In fact, as we continue on, we realize that Zechariah did believe without painting any more picture than the scripture does. Verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. He believed. I mean, you get that. All right? He believed what God said would be true, and she conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. That's a statement of praise, a statement of wonder. God here is fulfilling his promise. So for nine months now, Zechariah is dumb. He's unable to speak. But did you catch in verse 62? It says, And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Why were they making signs to him? Because not only was he dumb, he was also mute. All right? All right? Fun day. A fun nine months. Unless, of course, he coming to a home group party and he was your charades partner, all right, it probably wouldn't come in too handy. But I'm sure he had to learn to cope with the limitations that God put on him. And the limitations that God was putting on him, again, I don't think were there for a punishment. I think they were there to teach him. Now, do you think it was a trial for him to not be able to speak and not be able to hear? How would your life change if those things were true? All of a sudden, boom, that's it. You'd have to learn things a little different, right? Oh, sign language. What's that? You know? I mean, you know, you start being creative, and if you ever get to another country, you don't know the language, you know what I'm talking about. You kind of, you, you, there's some natural, you know, sign language that kind of kicks in, but he has to adjust. And all the while he's adjusting, I'm sure it's frustrating, I'm sure it's a pain, but it's what God wanted him to go through because he wanted him to recognize that he is God and that he keeps his promises. And friends, hear this. You and I go through trials, go through difficulties, and all the while God is at work fashioning and shaping us, training us, and preparing us for what he has. Now, let's continue reading here. 
here's the, the, the day of, of the birth, verse 57, and we're just gonna, we're gonna breeze through these passages, we're gonna read through, but just kinda connect the dots here. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her, and on the eighth day they came to, the, to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, that was standard, that was normal procedure, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. You know what that is? That's a statement of belief. That's a statement of, I believe your promises in the, in the same way that I am, I'm affirming it, I'm confirming it by saying, yes, his name will be John, just like the angel said. And they all wondered, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open, <laughs> and his tongue was loose, and he spoke, blessing God, well, yeah. I mean, nine months of holding it in, just coming out and blessing God and praising him. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The blessing conferred on Zechariah and Elizabeth was not just a blessing for them. It was a blessing for the people in that region. It was a blessing for those who knew about the coming of the Messiah and, and started some of the, the pieces of the puzzle start to be start to fall into place here. So in in the silence of four hundred years, uh, we realize still at work accomplishing his purposes, even though we don't see him. Let's put it this way He is at work in our surroundings, we can say. All right, God is at work. Even though you don't see him at work, he is at work. Do you agree with that? All right, driving home today you, you better believe that he's at work. Someone pulling around you in this weather, you don't always know what's happening there. Protection, maybe if you're at the mall, um, just at home, you know, it could be all sorts of things. He is at work, even though you don't see him at work in your life, all right? In the silence of the nine months, we realize that God is also at work through our daily trials, pressing us and teaching us that he can do and will do what he desires to do. So he is at work then, not only in our surroundings, but he's also at work in our circumstances, the things that we're going through day by day. Now, there isn't a trial or struggle that isn't a part of God's overarching purpose for growth in your life. As small as it might be, you know, it might, it might be the, the fact that, you know, um, in our house, you know, we, we've got a couple of cats. You hear me talk about them every once in a while, but um, they, they, they love you know, if you iron a piece of clothing, guess what? If you don't hang it up, the cat will like to sit on it, okay? So, I mean, you know, you can come down, oh, I'm ready to, oh, man, I brush it all off. And it's just, these are just little, small things. But listen, God is even in that. He's in the minutia of life. And he's giving you strength to honor him, to, to glorify him. And even that might be used in a, in a way to, to grow you and to strengthen you for his purposes. Why, in James chapter 1 and verse 2 and following, it says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Fill in the gap. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Ah, there's one quality. And steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. The idea of perfection there is that you, you, you're having everything in place. You're complete. You're lacking nothing. It's maturity. God uses trials to mature us. God uses trials to grow us. God uses all these different circumstances to get us to the place that he wants us to be. And that's what he's doing with Zechariah here. He is dumb for nine months for the glory of God to teach Zechariah, but also to be a means by which other people would hear about God's work through him and his son, not Jesus, but John, as the Elijah that's going to be preparing the way for the Messiah. So the silence of 400 years, silence of nine months. Now we jump ahead to chapter 2. Chapter 2. And, and I'm weaving the story here a little bit further because I think we have, we have another occurrence of silence that has taken place here. And in the same region, shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now can you imagine the scene? It's a very ordinary night. There was a light sound of some bleeding sheep every now and then. Maybe some crickets. Maybe some birds. But it was a typical night for the shepherds. A warm fire, maybe a cooked dinner, some light and friendly conversation, a few jokes, some sleep. Verse 9, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. In high school, I had a friend by the name of Charles Jeffrey Evans. He was known as Buck, for short. Um, he was a little unusual, um, but we embraced him, we loved him. And one night, uh, there was probably about six of us that were at my house, and we were watching a movie late into the night. I mean, late into the night. It was like probably 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and uh, uh, he had fallen asleep during the movie. And being the, the friends that we are, um, we all looked at each other and said, mm hmm, opportunity for fun. So he's kind of laying back on the couch like this. And we all together conspired, and we got like two inches in front of his face. And in unison, we said, Wake up, Buck! Now, the sight that happened after that was something etched in my memory because his eyes got as big as they could possibly be. His jaw opened as, as far as it could possibly go. And literally, it was like the resurrection. I mean, it was like, he just goes, and it, and it was this, there was this moment of silence and this, this groaning moan, okay? So it's kind of like, it's kind of like, wake up, Buck! And it was like, like that, all right? And it was the funniest thing we just could, I mean, but can you imagine can you imagine waking up? See, I, I don't think the shepherds are out there cooking dinner and they're looking up in the sky and saying, oh, look, there's a light. Oh, yeah, there's a light. Oh, that's pretty. Ooh, that's a cloud. Maybe, maybe those are angels up there. Maybe, I don't know. I haven't seen angels in a while. No. It says the angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them. I think they all kind of were there and they're going, Whoa! I think that's what's going on. I really I think we don't, we don't grasp the essence of what's happening here in the silence of this night. Silent night, holy night. Whoa! 
Ah, right? That's the point here. The angels appeared. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. See, if, if it was something soft, why would they be filled with great fear? I mean, this was terrifying. Now, I think they all responded like Buck. There was a moment of silence. There was this groan of penetrating fear. And notice verse 10. And the, the, angel, of the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Excuse me here. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. Now you thought, you thought things were over. So here comes the angel, right? The angel appeared. Now just get the essence here of the text. And suddenly, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, I mean, you, you, you get the power of what's going on here. Silence. Now, it's not like, it's not like, you know, silence of 400 years, and then, oh yeah, and by the way, Zechariah, oh yeah, you know, and then he, you know, the silence is broken, and then Zechariah is telling everyone how there was an encounter, and then Mary's coming along telling everyone there was an encounter, and so the, the shepherds are on there saying, you know, there was a silence was broken back here, and the silence, no, this is new to them completely. This is their breaking silence story. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God breaks the silence of 400 years to kind of get the works in motion. He breaks again nine months later to confirm and affirm the one who would be preparing the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. And he breaks now into the silence of one night a short while later, to announce the birth of the Savior to the shepherds. He breaks the silence to say to the world, our Lord has come. The sun has risen. And he's risen with healing in his wings. Now that there's an earthly application and there's a messianic application. Now here's some concluding thoughts. Thought number one, God is still in the business of breaking into the darkness. We're all here. We're human. We're sinful. We struggle. We have heartaches. We have, um, we have difficulties. We have trials. We have emptiness. We have disappointment. Disgrace. We have hopelessness. We bring a lot of things that we might say are, fall into that category of darkness and you may be struggling in the midst of that darkness, but hear this, God is still in the business of breaking into the darkness. He is still at work in the darkness. That brings us to the next one. Not only is he still in the business of breaking into the darkness, he has been, or has been, and is right now orchestrating his plan in your life. I just believe he is and has been orchestrating your life. It's not that you go through life and God happens to be out there and he's a resource you can turn to every once in a while. He might guide you on your journey, you know, kind of like that, that guru you turn to every once in a while when you need help. 
No, he is a sovereign God who's sitting on his throne, completely in control of all the affairs of the world, in particular, your circumstance. Yes, and, and everyone in this room, it's like, I can't comprehend how he does that, but that's what he says he does, and that's what he promises he does, and I believe what he says, and I believe what he promises, because he fleshes it out over and over and over again in the pages of God's word, and we can fit ourselves into those promises and those truths. That's what he wants us to grasp, so he has been and he is presently orchestrating the affairs of your life. Now stop and think about that. You are here today, believe it or not, not because you finally got out of bed this morning and fought whether or not I should beat the weather and stuff. You are here today because God wanted you here today. And there's some people that aren't here today. There's some people here that left today because they're sick. God orchestrated that. God orchestrates all these things in our lives, and sometimes they're trials, sometimes they're times of joy and celebration, but he's working his plan to accomplish his purposes through us. I don't think Zachariah was jumping up and down saying, oh, isn't it great? Oh, he wouldn't be saying that. He'd be, isn't it great that God has caused silence to take place in my mouth? Now, Elizabeth might like it, but Zachariah, I'm sure, wasn't celebrating that, but he recognized that it was God's plan. It was his purpose. So a trial that we're going through, friends, get this, is part of God's orchestrating of his plan. So the Christmas story, ultimately then, is for us. He wants us to know his presence. He wants us to know his power. And he wants us to know his plan. And, you know, we may not recognize his presence. We may not feel it. You're not supposed to feel it. You're supposed to believe it. You may not see it, but you are confident by virtue of your conviction that what God says is true, that he is present. You recognize his power. Maybe you don't see it, but you know he is powerful to do what he wants to do in your life. You also recognize his plan. You may not know it specifically. He doesn't reveal it completely. He reveals it one step at a time, right? Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. He gives us enough for each day. You probably don't want to know that in a year's time you're going to lose your job. All right? Or something bad is going to happen to you. God is careful about his plan in your life. He knows it even though you don't. But you hold on to him. And so this thread of God's control, this thread of silence does not mean God is inactive. It means that he is in control even though I don't see his activity. So let me ask you, are you awestruck when you see God at work in the pages of his word? Do you acknowledge his hand working behind the scenes in your life? Do you see his goodness and care with the affairs and the things that you're going through, even the trials and difficulties? Do you see that the trial that you're going through right now is a part of God's preparation and training for what he has for you in the future? See, we as believers need to be reminded, first of all, to be faithful in the silence. You don't hear God. You don't know exactly how he's working. Guess what? He is, and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to fall into the ditch of abandoning him because I don't see him at work. He's calling us to be faithful, to be faithful, to trust him, to hold on. Secondly, to be available in the silence. God, I'm going to trust you, but I'm also willing for you to use me. And that might be through a difficult trial. 
Now, trials can be, you know, can be, you know, sickness, it can be tragedy, it can be something like, you know, enduring something, or it can be taking on a project or something like that. God, I'm available. Whatever you want to do, because ultimately, friends, what he chooses to do through us is for his own glory. And if he's bringing glory to himself, don't you want to be used to bring glory to God? I hope so. If we understand who God is and what he's doing in this world, I hope that's your desire. But not only that, to be teachable. To be teachable in the silence. Are you learning? Are you growing? When you don't see, when you don't completely comprehend what he's doing and how he's doing it, are you still teachable? To learn from all the things that you're going through. To recognize that he is at work accomplishing his purposes in his life. See, Christmas, yes, is about a little baby coming into a manger. That's the, I want to say, the, the, the cultural Christmas story. But Christmas is really about the ongoing thread that God had before the creation of the world that has a number of key events along the way. The birth, the incarnation of Christ being one. And it's a magnificent thing but it's part of this ongoing thread. And we must see Christmas and Easter and other things along this thread. And friends, even in your life, God's work in your life is still this ongoing thread of activity and growth toward Christ-likeness. Do you embrace that? Or do you run from it? Do you trust him in it? May, may this, this story, may, may this account, may these few passages to us of our great God who loves us, who cares for us, and who works his plan through all that we go through to bring glory to himself and to provide a, a, a good in the context of what he desires for us to be and experience in this world. Lord, help us today to contemplate the silence, to contemplate the things that we can learn in the silence, to contemplate, Lord, the ways that you want to use us in the silence. And Lord, to contemplate how we can be faithful. Lord, I, I'm sure that as we sit here, we are reminded of, of times, Lord, when we have wondered about you. Or we've thought something that, that you seem to be promising us is just absolutely impossible. Maybe it's the, the restoration of a relationship. Maybe it's a, a financial burden. Maybe it's just it's looking for work or sustaining a family. Lord, maybe it's a health issue. Lord, these, these are all areas in which we, we all struggle. We all live at one point in time. And Lord, help us not to abandon our trust in you because it seems that you're silent. But Lord, to hold on and to trust your will, to trust your plan, to trust your timing. And Lord, to glorify you all the way through. It's not easy to do. And there may be times like Zechariah that we struggle to see what it is that you say you're going to do. But Lord, as you teach us in the small things, Lord, help us to hold on to the reality of how you can take care of the big things too. And Lord, you are sovereign. You are completely in control. And whatever we desire may not necessarily be what you desire. So Lord, help us to be conformed to your will and to be resigned, Lord, that your way is best. And so, Lord, we give ourselves now, this, this Christmas Sunday, to be reminded that this is all part of your plan in bringing your son to
to ultimately go to a cross and to die for our sin so that we can be reconciled to you and we can be cleansed from our sin. Lord, we, we praise you for that. We are in awe of that. And Lord, we, we celebrate who you are and your love and your goodness toward us because of what you've done in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness in your name. Amen. Amen. Please stand as we close with our final song, O Come All Ye Faithful. Him, Christ the Lord.